This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. And let me invite you, if you're going to stay with us, to open your Bibles to Genesis 49. Genesis chapter 49. And we'll be looking at this chapter together. And if you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to grab one that is available on the side shelves there. You'll find it on page uh, 39. Genesis 49 on page 39 of those Bibles that are provided. And uh, you'll be helped because we're going to look at this whole chapter together. There's a lot here for us. And we want to have it right before us so that we can uh, see it together. Let's pray together before we look at God's Word. Lord, we thank you for just the effect that gathering together with your people and putting aside all that entangle and distract us and looking to ancient promises fulfilled in Christ, lifted up, crucified, buried, raised from the grave, that we can sing of these truths and sing of His victory and rejoice in our union with Him, our relationship with You, everlasting life, fellowship with one another that is not grounded in anything that this world would know, but a sacrificial love when we did not deserve it. Lord, we know it doesn't get any better. It doesn't get any more important than that. So thank you for the way that shapes us every time we gather and we come maybe disoriented or discouraged for various reasons to know the victory has been won, that no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. Lord, we pray that you would do a gospel work in us as we look at this passage we pray that we would look to the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb, sacrificed to save your people, the one who holds the scepter, and rejoice and praise the king. We pray that we would do it for your glory, in his name, amen. We've almost come to the end of our series through the book of Genesis. Genesis is, as you know, a foundational book in the Scriptures. And our prayer has been that it would be a foundational book for our church, that that spending time in Genesis would be a rock for us as a congregation as we think about life, as we think about loving one another, as we think about the gospel And I pray that that would be true. We've dedicated, at least when all is said and done, 61 sermons to this book. And you may be thinking, well, there's only 50 chapters. How does that work? And we figured it out. Um, Thank you for being eager hearers of the Word of God. And and thank you for praying for the preaching of the Word of God. Uh, I would encourage you to continue to do that. And uh, ask God that that our time together in this book would bear fruit 
that is uh, long-lasting in our midst. If you remember, we, we, we've done this in three volumes. And so volume one, we called Beginnings. We started that in January of 2021. And we looked at Genesis 1 to 11, which is kind of the history of the world. And then we went into volume two, which is the life of Abraham. We looked at Genesis 12 to 25, which is, you might call, the history of God's promises. And then we're finishing up now volume three, which we've called Patriarchs and Promises. We started that in January of this year, Genesis 25 to 50, kind of the history of God's people, particularly the focus there on the Joseph cycle, Joseph and his brothers. If we had to pinpoint a specific theme in the book of Genesis, there are many themes to follow, many threads to pull, to pull. perhaps the theme would be God's blessing on his people, God's blessing on mankind. Genesis begins that way. It begins with the creation of the world, the, the universe out of nothing, and then God, at the, and it comes to the pinnacle of his creation in Genesis 1, man and woman, we read In verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And we've seen that theme throughout our our time. And if the theme of Genesis is blessing, then the undercurrent just beneath it would be this kind of dark shadow of man's rebellion and sin. So from Genesis 3 on, mankind turns away from that blessing, is separated from fellowship with God, and the rest of the Bible is about God redeeming a sinful, rebellious people and bringing them back to himself. He expels Adam and Eve from the garden with a promise. The seed of the woman would crush their enemy. And bring them back to God. He floods the earth in Noah's day, saving Noah and his family to carry that promise. He calls a pagan moon worshiper to a land of promise. And Abraham leaves it all to follow him. Abraham gets these promises of land and seed and blessing in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and Promises like kings would come from you and and Sarah. And we read in Genesis 15, 6 that Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He chose the younger Isaac to carry the promise, not Ishmael. And the younger, scheming, heel-grabbing Jacob, not Esau. And it would be Jacob's younger favorite son, Joseph, that his other brothers would bow down to. In Joseph, we saw, we've seen God bless the nations through a suffering servant who was despised, rejected, declared dead, but he was alive, and he saved the world through famine. And now we've come to the end of this old patriarch's life. In chapter 48, Jacob blessed and adopted Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, as his own And now in chapter 49, he calls all of his sons to his bedside as he's dying to bless them. And if you're looking at an ESV, the the title of this chapter is something like Jacob blesses his sons. But as we'll see, some of these words don't look like and sound like blessing. Some are hard words. Words that we might see as calls to repentance or rebuke. But those words are also blessings 
if heeded. And my prayer is that as we read Jacob's last words, that we would take stock of our own lives, our own blessings, what needs to be said to the people we love most. Hopefully not waiting until our deathbed, but now. That we would see the gospel's work in us like we've seen it in Jacob. God's grace at work in Jacob. That our hope would be not just to live well, but to die well. And I think that's what we see from Jacob here. And so if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to look at four aspects of blessing from this passage. Four aspects of blessing. I'll tell you what they are up front. Number one, we're going to consider the blessing of blessing others. The blessing of blessing others. Number two, the blessing of faithful wounds. The blessing of faithful wounds. Third, we'll think about the blessing of salvation. The blessing of salvation. And then finally, the blessing of dying well. May the Lord order our affections and lives to be increasingly centered on Him. C.T. Studd's uh, poem says it well, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's look together at number one, the blessing of blessing others. Think for a moment with me about the difference between the Jacob that we're going to see in Genesis 49 here, blessing others, and the Jacob of earlier chapters in Genesis. He was born a usurper, grasping Esau's heel. He tricked Esau, if you remember, into selling him his birthright for a a bowl of lentil stew. He tricked his father Isaac into blessing him, conferring that blessing of the firstborn in chapter 27. He's mainly been concerned about himself throughout his life, throughout his story. When, When Dinah was sexually abused, He treated it kind of like an inconvenience. He threw his family into chaos by repeatedly showing favoritism to his wife, Rachel, over Leah, and his sons, Joseph and Benjamin, over the other sons. His family is a bit of a train wreck. It's in continual chaos. And Jacob says himself in Genesis 47, 9, we've seen few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. That's what we've seen. But now, the man who once attacked God and wrestled him is submitted to him. He's tapped out. He has given up the fight and is now walking and trusting God, walking with God and trusting God. He's seeking to be satisfied in him. And he's learned what it means to be blessed that he might bless others. So let's look at our passage here in verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Again, we're going to see the nature of this blessing is more than just a prayer. Uh, It's it's more than just kind of an encouragement Over his sons, it's a prophetic utterance, a revelatory message from God through Jacob over his sons that is predicting their future. This is what will happen to you, he says. Listen to God's word. Listen to your father. Again, there in verse 28, look there at the end. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. 
So every word that Jacob speaks, speaks here is suitable for each son. And I think that's a reflection of God's direction of the process. Everything that needs to be said is said. Jacob speaks for God here. He's walked with God, and now God is speaking through him. And his intent is for the good of his sons. Jacob understands he's been blessed in order to be a blessing. It's not just about him. And I think it's taken him a lifetime to learn that lesson. God told Abraham in Genesis 12 too, I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And we've seen this blessing. The promises of God pass from generation to generation and even to those outside the family, to the nations like Egypt have experienced this blessing. And beloved, we just need to pause and understand that we, we know the fulfillment of this blessing, of these promises, the true blessing of knowing Jesus Christ. Paul reminds us that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's Ephesians 1.3. And if you just look at that chapter, think about that blessing, it entails things like having a, being a holy and blameless status before God, uh, redemption through the blood of Jesus, forgiveness of all of our sins, having grace lavished upon us, being adopted by God Himself, obtaining an inheritance that never fades away, sealed by the Holy Spirit that lives in us. Christian, that's a description of you. Did you notice as Mark was reading the end there at Luke 24, as Jesus is about to ascend what He's doing? He's blessing his people. The culmination of these blessings is reached in Jesus Christ, received by us, by his followers. And the constant refrain in the Bible is that we are blessed both to enjoy and love and worship God and then to bless others. And one of the clearest and most tangible ways you can bless someone as you've been blessed is to share the good news with them. Tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Teach them the good news. We've received the cure for a disease, the, the answer to our greatest problem, and we want everyone to know about it. It's not me. It's not you. It's Christ. Simply receive Christ. Hear the good news. I'm not imposing my religion on someone who is drowning in a river when I save them out or throw them a rope. I'm just telling them how to be saved and not die apart from God. That's the good news that we have. That's the blessing that we have. We're, we're like Jacob. We are, if we're honest with ourselves, a bunch of scoundrels. I'll just speak for myself. Here's one scoundrel that God wrestled down into submission by his grace. And he now calls us to bless others, to love others, church, the way that we've been loved. That's why so many of the New Testament commands that you'll find to love one another, to be patient with one another, to forgive one another, to bear with one another, to, be, to, to, to forgive, to, to bear with, to be generous, to show mercy, to comfort one another, to reconcile, they're rooted in the gospel. God's bearing with, patient, forgiving, merciful, reconciling, comforting, bountiful, steadfast, undeserving love for us in Christ. That's what compels us to love others. That's what compels us to be long-suffering and patient with those in our lives. He died to save us from our sins, to bring us back to him, that we might love him and others. We're blessed to be a blessing. And we see this, this just transformation in Jacob. And I think it's worth pointing out as we look 
at this passage together. May it be true of us in our living and in our dying. That's number one. Let's think number number two, the blessing of faithful wounds. So, blessed to be a blessing. Number two, the blessing of faithful wounds. And the focus of this chapter, if you were to look at it and kind of diagram it, it's in a very poetic form. It's, it's really focused on Joseph and Judah. We're going to get to them next. But here I want to look at Jacob's words, especially to Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, that I think are, are, are more like calls to repentance than they are just mere blessings. And, and, and I don't think he's cursing them, but calling them to repentance. But before we get there, let's briefly review the blessings of his other sons. And usually when Jacob's sons are listed, they show up in birth order. Here they kind of start that way, and Jacob takes a turn here and there, I think, for different reasons as he's giving these blessings that are suitable for each son. So start there in verse 13. Look with me at verse 13 of chapter 49 with Zebulun. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Isaacar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. One of the things that you might want to do um, later as you're studying this passage is go and see how these, these blessings are fulfilled in other places of, in the New Testament, um, or in the Old Testament, rather. Uh, Jacob here is placing Zebulun before Isaacar, so that's out of birth order if you're kind of keeping score. And, and you see here that he's saying Zebulun is going to dwell by the sea, Isaacar is going to settle in a fertile place, but they're going to they're end up being servants and slaves. And that's what we see happening. They become slaves to the people dwelling in Canaan. Uh, look at verse 16. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. It's an interesting description. Uh, it, the, the language is almost one of a viper, like, a, like these horned vipers that would hide in crevices of rocks and bury themselves under the sand. And then when a horse or an animal or a person would come by, they would uh, come out and attack them and bite them. Uh, and, and many Jewish rabbis look at this promise to Dan and see a connection with Samson, uh, who comes from Dan he, he, he seems to have all of these messianic properties, all of these characteristics about him. His mother is initially barren. An angel comes to her, promises conception. Child is born, set apart as a Nazarite. Um, and, 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 and then said that he would save Israel from Israel's enemies. And eventually he does by dying for them, sacrificing himself. Um, and so, but we learned, as you study the, the, that passage in, in the section in Judges, that Samson is clearly not the Messiah. Number one, he's still dead. And we see the, the sin, obviously, in his life that, that leads to much of the, the problems that he has. But it, maybe that's what Jacob is reflecting on there in verse 18. Look what he says. It's like he breaks in. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. It's like it's going to get close with Dan, maybe. It's going to be close there, but I'm waiting. We're going to be waiting. Gad and Asher were sons of Zilpah, Leah's handmaid, and uh, Naphtali and Dan, they're sons of, of Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid. Uh, so you see their, um, their blessing beginning in verse 19. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich 
and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Let's turn now our focus to the oldest of Leah's sons, Reuben. So for that, we need to go back to verse 3. Back to verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. As we've noticed, the firstborn son had special status, even legal privileges, to receive twice the amount of the inheritance as the other sons. And so Jacob is describing here what really what Reuben should have been. Jacob's first fruits, first in dignity, power, a reflection of his father's might and virility. I think when we read this, it reminds me of Adam. The, the Adam in the garden, the original son of God, made in God's image, God's image to represent him. And yet, because he's seeking out God's authority, he falls from that status. And that's exactly what Reuben does. He seeks to displace his father by laying with his, one of his wives. Look at verse 4. It changes here. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went into your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So Reuben is a man who was ruled by his passions. Jacob says he is like water that can be stable and harmless, case in point. Or it can turn into torrents of water, rains that destroy all in its path. That same water in that bottle, you know, took place. We we were all were here in 2017 with Harvey and saw the devastation that happened through water. It's this frothing ability, the instability instability of water that he, he is reminding him of. And he reminds Reuben and all of his sons of Reuben's sin. You can go back and look at that in Genesis 35 of sleeping with one of Jacob's wives or his concubines. And notice what he does. He goes from the second person, you went up to your father's bed, to speaking to all the sons in the third person, he went up to my couch. And the word that he uses here, that word defiled, I just think that's especially striking. It's it's making something unholy. It's the reverse of sanctifying. And it's applied in Scripture to holy things like the Sabbath and the sanctuary and the name of God and sacrifices or the priesthood. Notice here that it's applied to the marriage bed. In God's sight, the marriage bed and all that goes along with it is holy. Marriage created by God between one man and one woman till death do us part should not be defiled, whether it's through lust, pornography, adultery. Listen to the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The, The tribe of Reuben basically fades out of biblical history after they settle as a people in Numbers 32. No prophet, no judge, no king comes from this tribe. And that's just a picture of where sin leads us. This is where sexual sin ends up. Defiling the marriage bed, we're left with emptiness and regret. And why is Jacob bringing this up in his last words 
to his son, if not, that it's not resolved. That he hasn't repented, made it right. Friends, there is great forgiveness, restoration, hope, and acceptance in God's grace. But apart from it, we will stand before God completely exposed in our sin. If you have sin, sexual or otherwise, in the shadows of your life, expose it to the light. Expose it to the Lord. Confess it to your brothers and sisters. Repent. Turn to Christ who is eager to receive you and restore you and forgive you. Next, he turns to the next oldest of Leah, Levi and Simeon. Verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Uh, The reference here goes back to chapter 34. And the, the violent retribution from Levi and Simeon against the men of Shechem for Dinah's rape. After having those men circumcise themselves and they're, they're there in their recovery and their pain, they go through and slay and kill every male. Jacob describes this as anger. Anger that is fierce and cruel. And I don't know if this is an illustration or just another event of them going and hamstringing these oxen, cutting that back tendon on the leg of an oxen so it has to now hobble through the rest of its life. Just inflicting constant misery out of spite to punish, to inflict pain, to get some semblance of revenge. They didn't trust the Lord's justice, so they're going to be scattered and divided in Israel. The tribe of Levi, as we know, will never be allotted their own land as priests. And the the, the tribe of Simeon only receives a portion within Judah that eventually is lost as well. Jacob says he doesn't want to be joined with them, his soul to have counsel with him. Again, I think this is a, a call to repentance. He doesn't curse his sons, he curses their anger. And apparently, again, this issue is unresolved. And Jacob is speaking to it now on his deathbed. Repent. So, beloved, I just think we need to hear this and take anger seriously. Sometimes I get the sense, maybe from the world or maybe in other places, that maybe we get, we kind of subtly can brag about our anger. Subtly kind of see it as a sign maybe of that masculinity of rage, is a sign of strength. Friends, it is just the opposite. Seeking to hurt people with your words, to injure others, punish them, trample over them, make others suffer, put them down, is sin. And it reveals in us the same thing it reveals in Levi and Simeon, a lack of trust in God and His justice. When Paul lists um, 
works of the flesh in Galatians 5, he hits on sexual immorality, idolatry, sorcery, drunkenness, envy, and dissensions. But he also includes fits of anger. And says those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So let Levi and Simeon be warnings to us. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James 1.20 So be angry at your anger. Come to Jesus. I wonder if there's a connection between a, a lack of fellowship, lack of being addressed by the word of God, and, and then pouring out anger on, on others, or a lack of restraint and self-control sexually. Where do we go with that sexual temptation? Where do we go with that anger? We go to Jesus. So let's look at our third blessing, number three, the blessing of salvation. The blessing of salvation. Again, the focal points of this poetic narrative are surrounding Jacob's sons, Joseph and Judah. Even though Benjamin plays a big role in the story, in the Joseph story, his prominence begins to fade in, in the sense uh, compared to Joseph and Judah. You see there in verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning, devouring the prey, and at evening, dividing the spoil. There are numerous examples of this fierceness uh, from the descendants of Benjamin. Often the tribe of Israel would, would say, after you, Benjamin, in, in war. Uh, we've got people like King Saul from the tribe of Benjamin who, who won these many battles. The Apostle Paul, who, who was converted, you know, we may know him as Saul, from the tribe of Benjamin. He was fiercely, fiercely persecuting Christians. But it won't be the might of battle that wins the day. Let's see what Jacob says and speaks over his son first of Joseph. Verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bow. A fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. That's a, this is a description of a tree planted by a stream. It sounds a lot like what we read of the blessed man in Psalm 1, verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. If you study that Psalm, Psalm 1, you see it's because he's not taking counsel in the, in the wicked or sitting with scoffers. What's he doing? He's delighting in the law of the Lord. He's meditating on the law day and night. Now, we've seen this description in Joseph's life. All that he does is blessed by God. Even in the midst of attacks from every side, look at verse 23. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet, his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. So Joseph remained steady, unmoved by these attacks, which probably looked back to his brother's attacks, throwing him in the, in the pit, selling him into slavery, Potiphar's wife's lies about him, the betrayal of the cupbearer, all those things in his life. God has proved himself to be like a shepherd and a stone of Israel. And I think those, those are particular, those, those descriptions are mean, meaningful as um, Jacob reflects on them. He, he confessed how God guided him like a shepherd all of his days. In chapter 48, and if you remember, he laid his, his head on that stone in Beersheba, that rock, and he had the dream of the ladder and the link between heaven and earth and set it up later as a memorial stone. 
This is the God that will be with Joseph and his descendants. Verse 25, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. So God is the reason that Joseph is flourishing and has flourished, and God will bless his descendants with rain, with fruitfulness of the womb, even in ways that are beyond the way that God blessed Jacob. Up to the bounties, he says, of the everlasting hills, and perhaps that's a reference back to the Garden of Eden and being restored to that place, to those hills, as one who is set apart from the rest. And the root word of that set apart is where we get the word Nazarite, meaning like, like men like Samson and Samuel and John the Baptist, all kind of a prelude to the one who was set apart to save his people from their sins. Joseph is clearly a type of that one. The Messiah is going to be like Joseph, but he's not going to come from Joseph's tribe. He's going to come from the line of Judah. And so let's look at Judah's blessing now, beginning in verse 8. Judah. Judah's name means praise. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. So play on words. Praise your brothers will praise you. There's only three other places in the Bible where human beings are, are listed as being praised. And I just think that's interesting. Notice how much this sounds like, like Joseph. Your brothers will bow down to you. They will praise you. It's like the, the shape of Joseph's life and, and ministry is now kind of applied to Judah and the one who would come from Judah. The Messiah is going to look like Joseph's life come from Judah. He's going to defeat all his enemies. So his hand is going to be on the neck of his enemies. There's a place in the Psalms, uh, one of David's Psalms, Psalm 18, verse 40, where David says, You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. And the ESV has a footnote there. It says, You gave my, me my enemies' necks. David is seeing himself as this Davidic, or as this, this king from the line of Judah, who is, who is that those promises are being fulfilled in him. And eventually, as God uses David to, to defeat his enemies over and over, this phrase, the lion of the tribe of Judah, comes to be. And it's rooted here in Genesis 49, verse 9. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son shall have gone up. You shall have gone up. He, st- he stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? Across history, Kind of universally, lions are a sign of kingship. They're, they're awesome. If you don't watch National Geographic, you should. And just look at the lions and what they do. They're amazing. And they're very common in Israel during this time. They're, they're listed over a hundred times in the Old Testament. Just think about the strength and the majesty and the roar of a huge lion and that, that image. And Judah it pictures here... A lion, and, and you've got kind of words like cub and lioness. I think those are all synonyms for lion that has seized its prey 
and then it's returned back to its den and is now guarding the prey there, daring anyone to come and challenge it, challenge this lion. So if you're looking for an image of eternal security, there's a good one. The lion has come and taken what's his and now guarding it. Who is going to challenge the king? Nobody's going to come and do that for what is truly his. Of all people, it's this kind of shady prophet Balaam that's used to, in the Old Testament, to sort of proclaim this. Someone who was supposed to curse Israel. You remember the story in Numbers 23? He meant to curse them. He was called to curse them. And he says this, Behold, a people, as a lioness, it rises up, and as a lion, it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. Numbers 24, 9, he, he crouched, he lay down like a lion, like a lioness who will rouse him. Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. It sounds very much like what we see in Genesis 49. So there's a lion coming from Judah who is also going to be a king. Look at verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The staff and the scepter are symbols of a king's authority. And if you put that together with verse 8, Judah is being told that he's going to be the leader of all the tribes and that rule is not going to depart from his, his, his descendants. From between his feet, that's a reference to children that are born from him. And this picture of his rule is universal. Notice all the peoples will obey him. It's like he's saying every knee will bow and every tongue confess that one of his descendants is Lord. And, and the picture is one of foreign nations coming and paying homage and tribute to the rightful king and submitting to him. Balaam again, Numbers twenty four seventeen. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So a king that crushes the head of the enemy, a star and a scepter. Beloved, we know this king. This is our king, King Jesus. The one that John reveals in Revelation 5, saying, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, that he may open the scroll and its seven seals. And then saying with a loud voice in verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. They're giving tribute to the king. And did you notice the lion is also a lamb? He laid his life down as a sacrifice, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And he rises with a roar over sin and death, the Lion of the tribe of Judah that will come again and put down all of his enemies and take all of his people home forever. No one will be able to snatch them out of his hand. Friend, trust in Jesus. Turn from your sin. Praise the King that died to save you, that rose again for your justification. And is coming to make all things right and new. What will it be like when he comes? We have a preview here in verse 11. He will be binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He was washed his garments in white and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. 
It's just a picture of true, complete health. But what you see there in these verses is unimaginable prosperity that's ushered in through the Messiah's reign. Much of what Jacob has seen is famine in the land and and the ground being cursed by, by sin. But what if it was so plentiful that you could tie your donkey up to a grapevine? The choicest grapevine. Why would you not do that? Well, because he's going to eat it. But it's so prosperous, who cares? There are so many grapes that people will be washing their clothes in wine, he says. That's the prosperity that the Messiah brings in. Can you imagine having so much that you replace water with wine? That gets our attention, doesn't it? John chapter 2, a wedding in Cana, when they run out of wine and Jesus turns the water into wine, the best wine for the guests. It's the first sign that he does in John's gospel to say the Messiah is here. I'm ushering in the age that Jacob foretold. The king of the line of Judah has come not just to wash you with wine, but to wash you with my blood. And that's what will make us white as snow. Remember, Jacob is talking to Judah. Did you notice there's no curse, no rebuke to this sinful man? Maybe there's even evidence here of his redemption in these symbolic pictures of Jesus' prosperity. Remember, Judah was broken. He said to Tamar, she is more righteous than I. Judah was like a wild beast. He devoured Joseph like a lion. Washing the garments in the blood of grapes, that reminds us of dipping Joseph's cloak in blood. And the staff that was once used as a down payment for his sexual immorality with a prostitute, is now a symbol of his kingship. Friends, that's what redemption looks like. That's what being washed in the blood of the Lamb looks like. And that is what is on offer for you and for me. Total redemption. This is the best news on the planet. And it is available. Christians, never lose sight of this. Oh, there's so many things to distract us from this. To be more excited about other things than this. That other people would know other things than this. Worship the king. The lion of the tribe of Judah. We need to conclude. But we're going to just do that by looking at Jacob's final words here. And look at the, quickly the last blessing. Last aspect of blessing of dying well. When it's all said and done, this is what Jacob says. Look at verse 29. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it, were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. His dying wishes were, were, 
to, to, to put his, his faith in the promises. He doesn't want Egyptian sarcophagus and all those wonderful things. He wants a cave that was promised by God. He's turning away from the treasures of this world to the promises of God. And, and maybe deathbeds have a way of revealing where our hearts really are. Friend, where's your heart? Where's your treasure? I didn't say, uh, you, you, you th- if you think you've earned heaven, Jacob struggled with God his whole life. He failed in a thousand ways, and he dies here well, believing in faith. Our hope is not in our performance, it's in Jesus Christ. And that truth is about to be right in front of you as we take the Lord's Supper. It's coming right at you. This is a time for you now to preach the gospel to yourself. It's not in me, this is in Christ, not by my works, not even the quality of my faith, not my record of obedience. In Christ is where my hope is found, washed in the blood of the Lamb, made white as snow. So let's prepare for that by singing together of the one who's come to make death's dark shadow be put to flight. Emmanuel, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel and for time to come together to take the supper. Thank you for this picture of unity. Thank you for this picture of the alien righteousness, Lord, that is ours through Christ. And we pray that it would be on display now, that the gospel would be so palpable and clear now for us, that we would be thrilled and amazed afresh and anew by your love. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.